All right. Good morning. The few, the elite that are making it through the end, you see everyone starts off the race. It's like seed that's been scattered on the ground. And sometimes it springs up really quickly, but it doesn't survive because it has no root. But you guys are the ones with root. You're here through the end of the semester as we are getting close to finishing up church history. Let's pray, and then I'll tell you what we are studying today. Dear God, we thank you for your word and how it protects us from uh, false teaching. As we look over some enemies of the faith in, uh, in church history, I pray that you would protect us, not by avoiding the thought of these guys, but understanding it better than they do and comparing it with your word. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's what we are going to be doing today, uh, you know, as we get ready for a picnic. Nothing gets our appetites, you know, up like studying uh, bad guys in, uh, in church history. We're going to be going over enemies of the faith in the modern era. Modern there doesn't mean like today, like 2021. We actually live in the postmodern era. The modern era in church history is really everything that happens after 1750 or so. And so we're going to look at, this is basically going to be a list of who's who when it comes to people who have negatively impacted culture in my opinion, or have negatively influenced Christianity, in my opinion, okay? We're not going to talk about Immanuel Kant. We already talked about him during the Enlightenment lecture. We're also not going to be talking about uh, Schleiermacher. We already talked about him in the Theological Liberalism lecture. But the rest of this lesson, we're going to be looking at some bad guy thinkers, is what I'm calling them. Obviously, they don't think they're bad guys. Other people don't think they're bad guys. Zach Lee thinks they're bad guys, okay? And then we're going to be looking at some bad guy theologians, which are primarily theological liberals. Again, it would be helpful to listen to that theological liberalism lecture uh, before jumping into this. Now, I need to give a clarifier because there's something that Christians do that I don't like, and it's this. We have a tendency when somebody says something that's unbiblical to just dismiss them and not really try to understand them. We have a tendency to just make a straw man Knock it over and that's it, okay? As one philosophy professor told our class, be careful when you're mocking people who are smarter than you. So, yes, we can say, for example, that uh, Darwin's view of macroevolution is not biblical, but you can't say he's stupid. You can say Marx's view of economics and politics is unbiblical, but you can't just say it's stupid. If it's stupid, you have to show how it's stupid in their field as well. You have to say Darwin's view is unbiblical and it's not good science, you have to say Marx's view is unbiblical and it's good, not good economics. You have to say Nietzsche's view is unbiblical and it's bad philosophy. If it's actually false, you should be able to prove that it's false in that field as well as biblically. This is something that uh, Galileo actually uh, mentioned when he was under trial. He said, if my view is really unbiblical, then you should also be able to disprove it using science and physics. Because God is the God of all truth. And so if it's wrong in the Bible and the Bible's true, then it should also be wrong in science. So show me those proofs as well. So we need to keep that in mind. Don't just try to dismiss these guys and think, ah, they're bad. Try to understand what they're saying. Now, there are some thoughts and some thinkers you can just say are idiots. If somebody thinks the earth is flat, you can just dismiss them. If somebody thinks men can be pregnant, you can just dismiss them. But with these kind of thinkers, they are going to be better thinkers than most of us in here. Not better than Jeff Ashley, but better thinkers than most of us in here. Okay, so let's go over a few. Let's get into the first. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. By the way, a lot of these guys are going to be Germans. I don't know what that says about Germany. Germany was just a collection of feudal duchies until the 1800s. They were not industrialized nations like England and France. And so what they did is they kind of swung the pendulum right after that. They kind of had little man syndrome, and they swung the pendulum. And then the most advanced nation in the world in the 1930s was Germany. 
They had the most educated uh, civilization. They had the best universities. They had the strongest military. So they really swung the pendulum. You'll notice a lot of these guys are Germans. There's a few who are not, but, you know, the Germans. They, uh, they come up with big philosophical ideas, and they, uh, they start a bunch of wars. Okay, Hegel, 1770 through 1831. He is in the top four most influential philosophers of all time. He is on the short list with Plato, Aristotle, Kant, and then Hegel. So he is really the last great systematic philosophers. A lot of philosophers will be famous just in one area. They just focus on ethics, or they just focus on science, or they just focus on whatever. Hegel is trying to create an entire system that deals with metaphysics and epistemology and ethics and everything. He is doing big-ticket philosophy, and his thought is very difficult to understand. So I'm going to try to give you a summary But don't let it discourage you because we're going to move on to some thinkers that are easier to understand. But you have to understand Hegel because of his enormous influence. Tell me some things about this this, uh, music stand. I want to know everything about this music stand. Everything about it. Tell me some stuff. It's metal. Yes. What else? It's adjustable. Excellent. What else? I would have thought someone would have said black first. Uh, But no, adjustable. It does. Yeah. You check that out. Okay. What else? It's what? It's stable. Yes. Yes, it is stable. Yes, correct. It's stable. It exists. That's a great one. That's, now you're thinking like a philosopher. My favorite thing about this music stand is its existence. Without that, who cares about all the other attributes? Now, we could keep going, but we could go further. To understand the music stand, we have to understand that somebody painted it, but we need to understand where that paint comes from. And we need to understand who that person is who used the paint. And this music stand is standing here upon carpet, which somebody brought here because somebody else made it, because somebody else ordered it. To really understand the music stand, you have to understand the whole of everything, from the music stand all the way up to God himself. So for Hegel, he's trying to see this entire system that, goes, that is pervasive and covers absolutely everything. And what he, he mainly contributes to philosophy in a philosophy of history. How does history progress? So in, in Hegel's mind, history progresses through these different, what he calls, forms or shapes of spirit. What the heck does that mean? This is the German word Geist, which means spirit. Here is the idea. The world is evolving and God is evolving. Okay. Hegel is a pantheist or panentheist, someone who thinks that uh, the universe is God, Or God is more than the universe, but the universe is part of him. That is Hegel. So what history does is it develops through a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Now, this is not Hegel's terminology. His predecessor, a guy named Johann Fichte, was the one that came up with that language. But here is the idea. I'll I'll make it simple, and then we'll look at it in history. Let's say I put forward a thesis. Let's call that the color yellow. And then I put forward an antithesis. Let's call that the color blue. What then is the synthesis of these two ideas? Green. And then that's my new starting point. That's my new thesis. So then I go to a new antithesis. Let's say that's the color white. So now my synthesis is light green. There's this idea that's put forward. And then there's the counter idea. And then you end up synthesizing those to find something in the middle. And that becomes your new thesis. So what would that look like? So let's say you have the family, right? When you're a family, let's say you're a five-person family, you do what's best for the family, you care for the family, your family is what's most important. That'd be the thesis. The antithesis would be free market economics, right? Where you don't really care about others, it's about the individual. I want to make my money, I don't care if other people make their money, it's that individualism. 
What then is the synthesis? Well, according to Hegel, that is something like the state. The state has people pursuing their own ends, but also they're working kind of together. So a lot of nationalism, a lot of statism is going to come from Hegel because of this. In Hegel's mind, as history develops, you get this kind of uh, national consciousness. We have that as Americans, right? We have Uncle, Uncle Sam, and we have, uh, you know, Bald Eagle, and we love free. We have a national consciousness. That is a type of spirit, Geist, for, uh, for Hegel. But God is the world spirit. God is also coming to this, going through this process of self-realization and self-actualization, as history progressive. All of humanity is progressing and getting better through these different conflicts. You can't get rid of evil for Hegel. You've got to go through it. It, 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 it makes you better. But God is also doing that. Okay? So this is a very, uh, he's trying to keep religion in his system, but have a big worldview type of philosophy. Now, that's very technical. He's very uh, difficult to read. His greatest work is called Phenomenology of Spirit, and it is a chore. But let me tell you where this is going to influence theology. The traditional view of God in theology is that he is static. Okay? He is immovable. He is unchangeable. He is impassable. You don't affect God. God affects you. Do you think you give God good and bad days? Okay? Think about that for a second, because I think a lot of you do. You think that you acted poorly today, and so God loves you less now because he's like a giant human, and he regrets saving you. But as the Bible would say, that the glory of Israel is not a man, that he should have regret. Okay, So God is impassable. You don't affect God. You don't change God. God has always been doing great. Father, Son, and Spirit always doing great, even before there's any creation. So God is great. He does not change. That's actually the hope that we have. How can I know that God still loves me today even though I'm a sinner because he is unchanging? What Hegel's view is going to lead to is a view in theology called process theology. Process theology is that God changes, that God uh, experiences new things, that God himself is evolving. God is learning more about himself. If you go to a battle and you've never been in war and you go through battle and you realize, "I, I did it, I was courageous, I just learned something about myself. All of human history is God realizing more things about himself. So it's a very different view of God and it all comes from this real creepy looking guy, Georg Hegel, okay? But he is brilliant. He is a really uh, brilliant philosopher, but uh, obviously his, uh, his views are not orthodox. When he says God, he means this pantheistic world spirit that evolves. He doesn't mean the Trinitarian God of the Bible. But a lot of theologians post-Hegel will talk about God the way that Hegel does. Next is a guy you definitely have heard of. His name is Karl Marx, 1818 through 1883. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Marx. Everybody know who Marx is? Okay, if you don't, just, oh, never mind, I won't say that comment. Okay, I'm growing in sanctification. I was going to say something, and I realized I should not say that. So uh, if you want me to know, if you want to know what I was going to say, just ask me later. Uh, Karl Marx believed that free market capitalism confused a worker's use value with exchange value. Let's pause for a second. What is more valuable when you are dying in a desert, a diamond or a bottle of water? A bottle of water. Use value is how useful something is and the value ascribed to it based upon that usefulness. Exchange value is just what the market says something is worth, whether you try to, to sell it, buy it, or trade it. Okay, so a diamond has a really high exchange value, but its use, it's pretty, 
You could put it at the end of tools, but it doesn't have a high use value. Water is very cheap. It has a very low exchange value, but it's very, very useful. And what Marx thought is that capitalism confused those two things, and it alienated workers from themselves. Humans are made to work. Marx wouldn't say it that way because he's an atheist. Humans find delight in working. And when you have unbridled capitalism, and you're just sitting on an assembly line, you know, making the heel of a shoe all day... You're alienating a worker because you're robbing something from them. They don't make enough money to buy the very product that they're trying to produce. And you've stolen their essence. The factory worker owns the most important thing that humans can do, which is work. Okay, So for Marx, humans are homo faber, the, the working uh, man. That's kind of what makes humans have value. So as things are becoming more industrialized, you have the, the shop owners, the bourgeoisie, and you have the proletariat, the guys that, uh, that work in the shops. They don't own their labor. The bourgeoisie owns their labor. And this leads to a terrible, terrible life. You have to understand, I'm very pro-capitalism, yes and amen, but I like that there are child labor laws. Okay, So you, you don't want it at all expense. For someone like Marx, what happens is capitalism simply means you go in and you work 18 hours a day making the same product and you hate your life. And you're given just enough energy. So you can go home and sleep with your wife to make more workers. It is a type of slavery that you cannot get out of if you are the proletariat. Okay? So Marx believed that free market capitalism confused a worker's use value with exchange value and believed that, therefore, the only way to avoid being a slave to the bourgeoisie was to abolish private property and to have the state equally redistribute wealth. He promoted these ideas in the Communist Manifesto, which a lot of people have read. But more importantly, his great work is called Das Kapital. Okay? There's a picture there of Marx. Look at all that hair. It's like a mane, right? It's like a lion. Let me give you some very, uh, very dangerous quotes from the Communist Manifesto. The history of all society is the history of class struggle. In a word, oppressor and oppressed. When you view the world as two classes of people, oppressed and oppressor. Does this sound familiar? When you view the world that way, you are directly thinking like a Marxist. When you view the world that way, guess who becomes the ultimate villain? God. Because God has all the authority, and God has all the privilege, and God has all the power. You cannot buy into a Marxist scheme without it being anti-Christian. Marx himself is an atheist. Communism is explicitly atheistic. It does not see mankind as a spiritual being. Marx sees mankind as an economic being. That's what it really means to be human. The most important thing is economics. That's what drives everything. Not spirituality, not even uh, politics like Aristotle thought or rationality like Plato thought, but rather economics. He says this, in a sense, the theory of communists may be summed up in this single sentence, abolition of private property. Okay, Again, not a Christian. When the Bible commands you not to steal or not to covet your neighbor's wife, it assumes that there are certain things that belong to you. Not in communism. Communism, again, is not biblical. They, the communists, openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. The, the system is like acid. It has to eat away at everything for it to work. Okay? When you have family, when you have church, when you have industry, when you have, let's call them institutions, what those institutions do is they keep people where they are. So if you want to have a Marxist government, you have to have a complete overthrow of everything. Why is there an attack against the nuclear family? Why is there an attack against heterosexuality? Why is there an attack against Christianity? You have to have that for the system to work. 
Marx's theory, though, however, was seriously flawed for several reasons. By the way, Marx is not a dummy. He's a very smart guy. He did his PhD in philosophy, very, very smart. But where he's going to miss it, we'll see it in just a second, is his view of human nature. The reason that communism is illogical and it cannot work is because it views mankind as primarily good or neutral and not primarily evil. And the Bible teaches that we are born sinful. Every single one of us, Christ accepted, that we are born in sin and therefore we are evil. But there's a few reasons why Marx's uh, theory didn't work. By the way, he had two children that died in infancy because he couldn't afford good enough food and health care. So you can see how this might play into his thinking about, I need more money. We need to read it. There's this wealthy guy over here, and his kids get to live because he has enough money for health care, but I don't have enough money to give my kids food. Interestingly enough, uh, two of his uh, kids that survived to adulthood made suicide packs and killed themselves. There's actually a book, by this, uh, a book on this topic called uh, The Devil and Karl Marx, written by a Catholic scholar. Very interesting. Marx's theory was severely flawed. Let me give you a few reasons. One. The proletariat, the working class, in a communist system never actually owns the goods the government does. Listen to what I just said. In communism, everybody is supposed to own everything equally. It's all fairsies. We all share our stuff. That never happens in a communist government, and here's why it's illogical. It can't happen because you need somebody to control to make sure everybody's being fair. And as soon as you put a government in power, the the stuff doesn't belong to the people. It just belongs to those governmental leaders. Do you hear what I just said? Is if there is a country that does capitalism and they have a government, you're not doing Marx. Marx thinks that you have to share this equally among the people, which would include the leaders who have to delegate. But they shouldn't rise to power, but they always end up rising to power. Number two, capitalism was making everyone richer, not just the bourgeoisie. Why is it in America that a homeless person owns an iPhone and in Africa a homeless person does not? They're both homeless. Why is that? Okay, Because whether you hate the term or not, trickle-down economics is a real thing. When, every, when the society is richer, even the lowest in society are richer. Now, the gap between rich and poor is more, but who cares about that? God gives some people ten talents and he gives others five. Rather, the least often society still do better within a capitalistic society. Number three, there was a growing and content middle class. Marx thought that that couldn't happen. The middle class is supposed to be angry and rise up, but they're content because life is pretty good in these capitalistic nations. The communist revolution didn't happen in the most capitalistic nations, as Marx said that it should. Marx, here it is, following Hegel, thinks that the world develops through thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You have something like, you know, uh, libertarianism, if you want to use uh, kind of Hegel's thinking. The opposite of that would be something like communism, and then you would get to some form of socialism in the middle. You know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And then you start with socialism, and you'd keep progressing. Marx loves Hegel, but he misinterprets him, and he makes it all about economics. In Marx's view, society is evolving through purely economic factors, and you have to go through the process of capitalism so that people get upset, so that you have this revolution that leads to communism. That wasn't happening, though, in the most capitalistic nations, which is, again, a flaw in his theory. Number five, laborers in capitalistic nations could actually afford their labor. For example... Henry Ford's assembly line workers were paid enough to actually buy the Model T. So that breaks this whole idea that I can't afford the labor that I'm giving to the bourgeoisie. Number six, and this is the biggest reason why communism doesn't work. It was based on a view of humanity that saw us as primarily good or neutral instead of sinful. Okay? If mankind was actually good, listen, communism would work. 
the rich man, after working a long day, would hike up his slacks and he would get down in the rice paddy with the poor man and he would help him farm. But because mankind is selfish and sinful, it cannot work. Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm a teacher. Okay, I'm a teacher in a class, and I tell the class, no matter what anybody does in here, you're going to get a C. No matter what you do, you're going to get a C. Doesn't matter how hard you work, doesn't matter how little you work, everyone in here is going to get a C for the class. Does that make everyone work harder? No, the person who wants to get an A is no longer going to get an A because if they're just going to get a C anyway, why would they do that if their A is going to be taken away? And the person who gets an F isn't going to say, well, now I've got a shot at life. I can work really hard and get a C. He's going to say, I'm going to get a C anyway. And so it brings the entire class down. It does not lift up the entire class. The same thing is true because humans are broken and sinful. We don't want to just serve and love and help others. Because we're selfish, we just find a way to turn the system into something that is selfish. Now, I wrote down a few things here uh, when I read the Communist Manifesto that I thought was shocking that maybe you don't know about uh, Marx and Marxism. I'll mention a few here. Number one is extremely emotional, right? For somebody who's an atheist who has a PhD in philosophy, I was expecting there to be a lot more logical language, but it is very, very emotional. Number two, how it sought to abolish marriage in the family. See, if, having, if you have the haves and the have-nots, <clears throat> that's what's going to cause avarice. That's going to cause all these problems and greed. Well, that would also be the case with a woman and with children, You have the haves and you have the have-nots, people who are married and people who are not. So it sought to abolish marriage and the family. It stated that women would become the common sexual property of the proletariat once marriage was abolished. By belonging to no man, there's a sense in which they belong to the community. So keep that in mind. Most people don't. That doesn't sound very woke, does it? Women being common sexual property for people? Okay. How it said that land from immigrants should be taken away. Right? We're trying to do what's best for the nation originally, and then it expands internationally. But immigrants' land right now is a uh, hindrance to further industrialization um, <clears throat> of these, uh, these places in Eastern Europe. How it made fun of those who organize charities and care about animal rights. There's not an animal rights side to, uh, to Marx. Why would you organize charities? Okay, why would you do it? Just, just get the state to redistribute wealth. That's what people ultimately need. How it must promote its views through force instead of winning people by argument. Which leads to the next part. Listen to this. How explicit Marx was that you have to have violent revolution to lead to communism. He condemns those who think that they can vote it in or do it peacefully. Marxism as a theory must involve a lot of bloodshed, period, or you're not doing Marxism. He's very, very clear about this. Economics is what drives world history, and it's deterministic. There's no free will for Marx. Economics determines everything, and eventually that leads to a violent revolution so you can usher in this utopia of a communistic state. You can't vote it in or do it peacefully. So when you meet someone who's a Marxist, you need to remind them, okay, so you think we need to kill a lot of people, because that's what Marx thought, very clearly. I'm not making a straw man. This is exactly what he says in the Communist Manifesto. How there was no green or eco side to Marx. He doesn't care about things like global warming. He thinks communism will lead to more industry. Caring for nature is not his concern. How there is no racial reconciliation side to Marx. Marxism is an international movement, listen, based solely on economic standing. Someone who tried to make oppression all about their race would be stealing and silencing the the voice of the poor. So for Marx, the poor white person is the one whose voice needs to be exalted, not the rich black person. Again, there's not that racial element in Marx. And then lastly, how it reasoned in a circle. What, what the Communist Manifesto is going to say is, when you think your life is pretty good, you've been duped. When you have a big house and you have a bunch of money and you have a nice job, that's only because you, the bourgeoisie has you right where they want you. 
notice how there's no way to respond to this. It's a circular argument. There's another Marxist thinker later on, a guy named Herbert Marcuse, that said the same thing, that all this good stuff you think you see, you're just being tricked. It's not actually good, you see. The bourgeoisie has tricked you to keep you content so they can keep exploiting you. You don't see it. Yeah, you think your life is good, but trust me, it's not. Well, there's no way to reason against that. You say, well, capitalism's pretty good. Look, it works. And they're like, well, that's only because you're tricked. And you see that they beg the question. They, they reason a bit in a circle. Now, Marx is not an original thinker. He's smart, but he's not an original thinker. His ideas he gets from a guy we already talked about named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who also thought that we should share things in common, also thought that you shouldn't have marriage in the traditional sense, etc. Marx explicitly mentions Rousseau. And Rousseau's idea is not original. He gets it from the first communist in history, Plato. The great philosopher Plato thought that the state should be ruled by philosopher kings. He happened to be a philosopher. And that everything should be in common, including wives and children. Okay? Including wives and children. Now, Aristotle will make fun of Plato for that, saying that then nobody cares for the women or the kids. Not everybody, if you end up doing that. You care for what's yours. You care for what belongs to you. Second, he was wrong. Capitalism was not inherently illogical. Notice today that uh, all the capitalistic nations are doing great. It's communist nations that aren't doing well. But, Zach, it's never been tried for a very long time. Yes, it has. Look at North Korea. They're doing great, right? But, Zach, it's never been tried the way Marx wanted it to. It can't be tried the way Marx wanted it to because the government will ultimately own all the stuff and people are evil. That's why it will not work. Okay? And third, and now I'll take a personal shot at him, he was kind of a loser. He lived in obscurity. He always mooched off his buddy Friedrich Engels, uh, etc. So, last comment here, and then we'll move to Freud, where you say one thing and mean your mother. Socialism is the most evil worldview of all time. It's estimated that over 110 million people have been murdered under communist regimes. Okay? If you are a Christian and you are promoting Marxist ideas, you are in sin. It is a whole system that is contrary to Christianity. Okay? It does try to stomp out Christianity. It is atheistic materialism driven by economic evolution. That's it. That's it, okay? So keep that in mind. Not that you can't take some thoughts from it and redeem them. Remember, all truth is God's truth. Where it says even something small that's good, maybe you can take that, but the system you don't need. Where it says something good, like helping the poor you already have in another system, Christianity. So you can reject the whole system, okay? Keep that in mind. Sigmund Freud, 1856 through 1939. The founder of modern psychoanalytical theory. Where does religion come from for Freud? Well, he, along with a guy named Ludwig Feuerbach, believed that humans projected their insecurities in life onto a father figure, God, which is what led to the invention of religion. When you're a kid and you hear thunder outside, you get scared, and who do you run to? Yes, your parents, right? Uh, that wasn't like a trick question, right? right? You're like, Hulk Hogan. I'm like, no, that's not. No, you run to mom or dad. You run to parents. They protect you. Well, what happens when you no longer have parents and you get older, but you still have all these fears and anxieties and insecurity in life? What you do is the human heart longs for somebody to protect us, longs for meaning. When you get that cancer diagnosis, you want somebody to help. You want daddy to help. And so what you do is you project that childish longing for a father figure up into the sky and you come up with religion. That's Freud and Feuerbach's view of where religion comes from. Freud believed that our unconscious mind affects us much more than we realize, and through psychoanalysis, sought to make the unconscious conscious. He believed that our natural urges for sex and violence are our strongest subliminal drives, and we simply channel them into other areas of life. So <clears throat> Freud makes fun of Marx, because Marx thinks that human wills are basically benign. We're basically neutral. Freud is saying, no, what mainly drives human is this dark, 
animalistic something inside of us that we can't even put our thumb on. We're primarily driven not by conscious things, but by unconscious things. And so the fact that you would want to give the government a bunch of power over people is insane for Freud. Freud makes fun of Marx at several places because of this. If mankind is driven by this animalistic instinct, this desire for sex and aggression and violence, humans are dark and evil. Freud is a self-proclaimed pessimist. Okay? Now, Freud would say that you're driven by your unconscious desires, but you can't just let people go crazy. The strongest desires for Freud are sex and aggression, sex and violence, period. You can't just let people do that. That would destroy society. Okay? So Freud doesn't just say anything goes. What we do is we find channels where it's acceptable socially. So you want to, as a man, sleep with a bunch of women, and you want to, as a man, fight a bunch of other men, and you want to kill them. You can't do that societally. So what do we come up with? Football. Where your violent tackle is cheered by thousands around you. And who cheers you on on the side? Cheerleaders. Girls without a bunch of clothes on. And everyone claps their hand and they say, this is good and normal. And Freud is like, think about what you're doing. What you're doing is you're finding a way for the aggression and you're finding a way for the sex to come out in ways that are socially acceptable. But there's still those animalistic instincts. So you've probably heard of this, that with Freud and psychoanalytical theory, you really have three selves. The id the ego, and the superego. We could turn that into a Hegelian dialectic. You have the id, that's the thesis, the superego, which is the antithesis, and then the ego, which is the synthesis. Here is kind of the, uh, the idea behind this. Your id is that animalistic self. It is irrational. It is the little brat inside your heart that says, I want it all, and I want it now, and I want everything that I want. Sex, aggression, violence, self-exaltation, that is the id, Okay? The superego, though, is the, the opposite of that. It's the overreaction. It's the voice of your parents inside of you or the voice of your preacher condemning you, and it only leads to guilt. Whereas the id says, I want to sleep with every woman, the superego says, how dare you? You could not do this. You need to. You're so terrible. Didn't your parents teach you about sexual ethics? And then the ego is kind of the adult that mediates between these two extreme positions. Whereas the ego is going to say... Okay, I can't just sleep with every woman I want, but also I'm feeling really guilty over here. What is the appropriate outlet for this? Ah, I know, marriage. So id says, I want to sleep with this woman. The superego is the voice of your pastor saying, don't walk in sexual immorality. And the ego finds a way to where it makes sense. Okay, well then I'll marry a woman, so it's socially acceptable, so then I can sleep with her without either of these two extremes bothering me too much. Okay, that's Freud. He was a pretty weird guy. He thought that cocaine was a miracle drug. He studied the sex lives of eels, and thieves once tried to steal his ashes. Okay? Now, if you've ever wondered why sexual identity has become public, it's because of this guy. Why, throughout most of American history, you would say, what you do in the bedroom is your own deal. Don't talk to me about that. Why, with the LGBTQ movement and all these kind of things, why does sexual identity become such a driving factor? Why do you want other people to know what you are? Why has that become the push? Because Freud. Okay? Freud is going to say that humans are primarily sexual beings. So for Aristotle, we're political beings. For Christianity, we're religious beings. For Marx, we're economic beings. For Freud, we're primarily sexual beings. That is who you are. That is who you most are. That is what most determines what you do in day-to-day -day life. It most determines your drives is this sublimated id that is trying to come out. There's Freud. He's got a great cigar, though. He looks very Austrian, you see, very angry. Next, Friedrich, and it's pronounced Nietzsche. It's not Nietzsche. 
Okay, it's Nietzsche. It's also not Karl Barth. It's Karl Barth. It's also not George Berkeley. It's George Berkeley. It's also not Augustine. It's Augustine. There you go. Okay, Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844 through 1900. This is, uh, he's kind of the bad boy of philosophy. He is uh, obviously a renowned atheist, but he's an existentialist philosopher who absolutely hated Christianity. He believed that Christianity was a religion for losers, what he called a slave morality. Uh, Christianity is what happens when people who are not excellent cannot achieve great things in life. Here's how it works. For Nietzsche, you have the master morality, those who are exceptional, those who are talented, those who are smart and strong and handsome and know that they're winners, that's the master morality. For Nietzsche, though, there's another morality, this herd instinct, and it's what Christianity is. See, Nietzsche is brilliant. He becomes a full professor in his early 20s, which is unheard of in Germany at that time, and he's a classics professor. And so he loves Greek morality. In Greek thought, it is evil to not be excellent. It is a moral failure to not be beautiful, right? The Greeks want you to be strong and smart and talented. They want swift-footed Achilles or Hector, breaker of horses. But in Christianity... Christianity is for losers. It's the slave morality. What happens if you're not excellent in life and you're a slave and you're under a master? Here's what you do. You say, well, my lot in life stinks. I can't be excellent, so maybe in the next life, God will judge my master. You see, the person who's excellent would rise up against the master. They would kill them. They would have a revolt. And if they died doing so, they died as a hero. But Christianity is for losers. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So we're not excellent as Christians. In fact, to try to be excellent, we're just being walking in vanity. We're exalting ourselves. So what we do is we settle for mediocrity, and we convince ourselves that that's actually good because we'll be rewarded in the next life. And at Judgment Day, God will shoot down all these people that had a great life, but we will be rewarded. And so he says, that's a slave morality. That's a morality for losers. Take what you want now. Be excellent now. You see, Nietzsche is very, very attractive for people that are talented. Christianity is very, very hard for people who are talented. And so Nietzsche puts forward this idea that it's actually not, he's not a nihilist, as people would say that he's a nihilist. He actually thinks Christianity is the nihilism. He wants us to exalt and have good things. It's Christianity who says, I'm not very excellent, so I'll just kind of stay in my lot in life, and then maybe I'll be rewarded in the next life. What Nietzsche wants us to do, is to become what he calls an Ubermensch, okay? A German word, Ubermensch. Now, every time I've heard philosophers talk about this, they always just translate it literally as Superman or Overman. Okay, that doesn't help us. What does that mean? Here's what Nietzsche means by the term Ubermensch. He means self-actualized man. He means somebody who, is taken, who has what uh, Aristotle called arete, excellence. He's someone who's taken his talents and he's maximized them. He has made himself great. His views were eventually adopted by a lot of Nazi high officials. By the way, Nietzsche is not a Nazi. Okay? To like Nietzsche does not mean that you're a Nazi. He dies before, way before the Nazi party. The Nazis, though, are taking three guys here we're talking about today. Hegel, Darwin, and Nietzsche. That's what, Mar- that's what Nazism is. Okay? Nazism is Hegel, Darwin, and Nietzsche combined because they like that he's talking about being excellent, being the best. What does Nazi Germany want to do? They're the superior race. They're the superior nation. They want to take over the rest of the world. Nietzsche, in a very appropriate uh, death for a guy who is, uh, who's this uh, angry atheist, he died in an insane asylum after catching syphilis from a prostitute. Okay? He is often cited as saying God is dead, but most Christians don't know what that means. We even make stupid movies with titles like God's not dead too. Here's what Nietzsche means. 
Nietzsche's not saying God is dead, that's all I'm saying is an atheist. What he says, and it comes from a parable of his, the parable of the madman. I've included it in your notes. It's short. It's really excellent. It comes from his work called The Gay Science. Gay there not meaning what it means today. <clears throat> and what he says is, God is dead and we have killed him. A guy runs into town saying, God is dead. And they're like, what do you mean God is dead? God is dead and we have killed him. What does he mean by that? We, the enlightenment killed God. There's nothing left for God to do. We have science now. We have physics. When you get sick, you don't need to pray. You can just take medicine. There's nothing for God to do. God is dead. Yet, we still seem to live under the shadow of his morality. Why are we still being Christian? Why are we still being moral? Why are we still being kind if the enlightenment has shown us there's no need for God? So what Nietzsche's doing is he's not saying he's killed God. He's saying we have, and yet we still live like there is one. Think about the atheist who stands there at a crosswalk when there's no cars coming because the hand is flashing red. Why would he do that? Walk across the street. There's no police around. God doesn't care. God doesn't exist. You're still living under the shadow of Christian morality, even though obviously Christianity is false. That's Nietzsche. Okay? I wanted to read this whole thing in here, but we won't for time's sake. Let's go to the next guy. Old Chuck. Old Chucky. Charles Darwin. You like my little picture there? Okay. Charles Darwin, 1809 through 1882. He's the father of modern evolutionary theory, and his influence was enormous. Human evolution is the given standard in the academic community around the world. Listen, Christians. If you want to say that Darwin's views are wrong biblically, you're correct. Okay? If what Genesis says in any way is true, you cannot hold to macroevolutionary theory. But if you're going to disprove Darwin, you better learn your science. You better stop making dumb creation museum accounts where you say a dinosaur is 4,000 years old. You better be smarter than that because 99.999% of scientists in the world who know science better than you hold to it. So you better be pretty good. Again, you don't, we, won't, we don't want to say these guys are right, but you better do your homework and not just casually dismiss them because you don't like it. An argument like, well, if humans evolved, why are there still monkeys is not a real argument. Do your science if you're going to speak into this issue. Though Darwin somehow got the credit for his view, other thinkers, both modern, Jeff mentioned one last week as well, but modern such as Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, 1744 through 1829, and ancient, Anaximander, 500 B.C., and Lucretius, 99 B.C., already had fully formed views of natural processes including evolution. I have no idea to this day why Darwin gets the credit for this. People thousands of years before him already had fully formed views of evolution, of things coming from other things, including human evolution. And for some reason, Darwin gets the credit. In my mind, Darwin is not a great thinker because these other guys have already said it. Great thinkers come up with something new. So I don't know why he, uh, why he got the credit, but he did. Also a weird guy. He once ate an owl. He had one degree, and it was not in science. It was in theology, interestingly enough. And he married his first cousin. Now... If you believe in survival of the fittest, what's the problem with marrying your first cousin? You see the irony there? It's not exactly what's best for the gene pool, but, you know, there you go. He believed, listen, that some humans evolved more than others. If you meet somebody that holds to human evolution, one of the places you should press them is, then they must be a racist. They're not going to be a racist. They're going to say, no, I'm not a racist. But the position is inherently racist, and here's why. If humans have evolved, then some humans are more evolved than others. Some types of humans have more resistance to certain diseases than others. Some are taller than others. Some are stronger than others. If you want to hold his view of evolution, it naturally leads to some type of racism. Now, people won't say that today because people are inconsistent. 
But Darwin wasn't inconsistent. Jeff mentioned the full title of his book last, uh, last week, On the Origin of Species, is actually called On the Origin of Species uh, by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Uh-oh. Look at this quote from The Descent of Man. The Western nations of Europe now so immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors that they stand at the summit of civilization. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races, savage races throughout the world. Okay? There you go. You want to be Darwinian? Be consistent. Stop being inconsistent. You then have the postmodernists. Now, we're going to do an entire lesson on postmodernism. Jeff's going to do it, so uh, I'm only going to get, give you the tip of the iceberg here. But uh, these include guys like Jacques Derrida, Jean, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Jean Baudrillard, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, Richard Rorty, and others. Essentially, again, Jeff's going to do a whole lesson on this, but just briefly, postmodernism doesn't just say all truth is relative. That's too naive. Postmodernism says all truth claims are actually a power play. All truth claims are an attempt to create an in-group, those that have the truth, and an out-group, those that don't. So when you say Christianity's true, you're creating oppressor and oppressed. You're saying we Christians have the truth, you losties are going to hell and you don't have the truth. Notice you've created an in-group and an out-group. An oppressor, those who have the truth, and an oppressed. Why did several proponents in 2020 of BLM go on record and say math is racist last year? Because of postmodernism. When you have truth, even if the truth is math, whenever you have a truth, you're creating an in-group, those that have the truth, and an out-group, those that don't have the truth. And so the postmodernists are are going to exploit this for their own advantage. Ironically, they end up being the only ones that have the truth, i.e. postmodernism, so that they can subjugate everybody else. But more on that in a few weeks. Good so far? Having fun with these bad boys? Let's everybody take a big breath. Reset our mind. Now let's get into some bad theologians. These other guys are primarily cultural thinkers. Let's get into some theologians. A lot of these guys, again, are still Germans, and they are theological liberals. They stand in the stream of Schleiermacher. Let's go over a few of these. Albert Ritchel, 1822 through 1889. He believed that Jesus was simply the ideal man and not the eternal word of God. By saying that Jesus is deity, Ritchel simply meant that he had perfect knowledge of God and he was morally obedient. We could not know theological truths objectively because they're merely the value judgments of a particular community of faith at a particular time. He denied original sin and believed that repentance is more about us changing our mind about God than having his wrath appease on the cross. There's a picture there of ritual. Remember, what theological liberalism seeks to do is this. It seeks to make Christianity relevant to a modern era. So to do that, you got to get rid of all the miracle stuff. You got to get rid of all the Jesus is God stuff. You got to get rid of all the, you know, atonement stuff. You got to get rid of all the sin stuff. You got to get rid of all the resurrection stuff. That's that's ridiculous. Those are fairy tales. People don't get up from the dead. What you have to keep in Christianity is just the shell. Morality and a general dependence upon some generic god. That's theological liberalism. Okay? And so you see these guys promoting that. He would say you can't say for example, homosexuality is sin. You have to say, according to the Jews 2,000 years ago, homosexuality is sin. The Bible is not giving us objective revelation. It's telling us the thoughts of other Christians who came before us. He was a major proponent of the social gospel movement, where the focus was on uniting humanity in love and social action toward the less fortunate and not on the forgiveness of sins. Remember, Christianity is primarily a doctrinal religion, a propositional religion. We believe facts, that's first, and then we go help people. But you have to keep it in that order. 
what the theological liberals will do is they'll switch that. They'll make social uh, gospel, social justice stuff first, and then the gospel comes after that if there's even any gospel at all. Adolf von Harnack. Just stay away from all Germans named Adolf. Okay? Just, uh, just as a good general rule. Adolf von Harnack, 1851 through 1930. What did he believe? His influence was very, very massive. Okay? He believed that the early church had corrupted Christianity by incorporating Greek philosophy into it. Therefore, the focus should not be on doctrinal statements about the Trinity or the person of Christ, but rather on the ethical teachings of Jesus. Here's what he would say. When the early church is hammering out the doctrine of the Trinity and who Christ is, they're doing all this philosophy. We shouldn't be doing that. In fact, we shouldn't really be talking about Jesus. Jesus taught us to love. The gospel according to Jesus is have faith and love others. That's the gospel according to Jesus. It's Paul who actually preaches a different gospel than Jesus. Jesus is preaching a religion about the kingdom of God, about love and faith and caring for one another. Paul, though, switches it. Paul makes it about Jesus himself. He makes him a God. He makes him where he's, he's the center of attention. That wasn't Jesus' message. Jesus tells people to go love someone or to go have faith, and that's it for a lot of them. doesn't even tell them who he is. And so von Harnack would say that the gospel has become corrupted from a message about Jesus to a message, uh, I'm sorry, a message about uh, ethical teaching that focused on love, one founded by Jesus into one that is about Jesus. Where Schleiermacher made Christianity about feeling, Harnack made it about the development of dogma throughout church history. The kernel of Christianity is the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, but the changing husk is what you see in different doctrinal statements. There's a crazy picture of Adolf von Harnack right there. Listen to this quote by him. The teachings of Jesus are, firstly, the kingdom of God and its coming. Now, he doesn't mean the same thing that we mean by kingdom of God there, so don't think he's, uh, he's a good guy. Secondly, God the Father and the infinite value of the human soul. Thirdly, the higher righteousness and the commandment of love. That's Christianity in a nutshell. We should go about, have a general knowledge of the fatherhood of God, love other people. That's Christianity. As one Catholic critic of Harnack once said, the Christ that Harnack sees, looking back through the 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. Okay, great quote. Now, he had a student that would go on to be much more famous than him and would also repudiate his views. His name is Karl Barth. Karl Barth's influence is so massive, we're going to have an entire uh, lesson just on this guy in a few weeks. Next, Rudolf Bultmann, 1884 through 1974. Whereas Barth is the most influential theologian of the 20th century, Bultmann is the most influential New Testament scholar of the 20th century. Okay? He uh, helped pioneer what is called form criticism. What he's trying to do is he's trying to figure out how did the Bible, specifically the New Testament, go from being oral tradition from these Semitic people into the written form that we have in Scripture today. So he wants to trace that out. Here's what was edited. Here's what was cut out. Here's what's inaccurate, etc. It's this higher type of criticism where one stands over the Bible. He believed that most of the things about Jesus didn't come from Jesus but from early Christian communities who distorted his views. He denied the deity of Christ and the resurrection. To understand the Gospels today, we have to, and this is a famous term with Boltmann, demythologize them. Meaning, we have to get rid of the magical, supernatural stuff. You realize in the New Testament, when it says that somebody had a seizure, it uses the term moonstruck. They used to think that that was caused by the moon. That, for Boltmann, is crazy. We have electric lights, right? We have airplanes. We have all kinds of stuff. Surely we can't believe in all this weird magic demons, exorcism, that stuff is stupid. That is child's play. We're modern people, according to Boltmann. There's a picture of him there. He looks a little bit like old Kevin Spacey, doesn't he? A little bit like old Kevin Spacey right then. Listen to this quote by uh, Boltmann. It is impossible to use electric light and the wireless. By that, he means radios. He doesn't mean like he didn't have internet back then. 
It is impossible to use electric lights and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Okay? So you see, what Boltmann's trying to do is he's trying to save Christianity. We can't keep it like it is. It's too ridiculous with all these miracles and magic and stuff. Instead, we have to adapt it based on these modern understandings of society. Religion for Boltmann is not so much about did everything the biblical authors say happened really happen. He doesn't care about that. He thinks they're saying a lot of false things. Religion for Boltmann is this. How do I apply this religion to my life when I'm in crisis? How do I apply it existentially? How, how does it matter and what meaning does it give to me? That's what's most important about religion, not really what actually happened. Anytime you hear a theologian, because you hear this around Easter time, say something like, sorry, we won't have time, by the way, for a Q&A. That's not what the theologian says around Easter time. That was me interrupting my own interruption, okay? Around Easter time, the last theologians, if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, would that affect your faith? Paul's answer is yes. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time, Okay? Their answer a lot of times is, no, that wouldn't affect my faith. I still have this personal relationship with God. Think about what they're doing. They're being Boltmann. They're saying the faith is not really about what objectively happened. That doesn't matter as much. It's rather about how it can benefit my life today. The purpose of religion is not to get an objective view of the world, but to understand our struggle in it. Listen to this quote. The real purpose of myth is not to present an objective picture of the world as it is, but to express man's understanding of himself in the world in which he lives. Myths should be interpreted not cosmologically, but anthropologically. Not about the universe, but about mankind, or better still, existentially, about our existence, about our angst and our crisis and the experiences that we go through. Boltmann, though, was a genius. He had all of the New Testament memorized in Greek. I remember having a New Testament professor that said, uh, Boltmann had all the New Testament memorized in Greek, but he's now quoting it in hell if he really believed what he said he believed about the resurrection. I thought, this guy, this is the guy, okay? All right. Paul Tillich, Paul Tillich, massively influential theologian, 1886 through 1965. He taught that there were, and this is important, these two poles for Tillich, that there were one, eternal truths, and two, changing culture. Okay, those are two different things. Our definitions of orthodoxy, what the church comes with, uh, up with as orthodoxy, is what you get when you try to combine the two. But you shouldn't combine the two because the eternal truths are what matter. To Tillich, Jesus is not literally God, but merely a symbolic example of what humanity is meant to be. Tillich tried to create a theological system that made Christianity credible on the basis of philosophical existentialism. Here's what Tillich's trying to say. You have the sign, the Christ, he always talks about him as the Christ, or the cross, or these different signs of Christianity. They're not what's really important. What's important is the essence behind it, okay? What's important is the essence behind it. So what he's doing, again, is he's separating what the Bible is saying from what is actually eternal and what's true. He's making these two different poles. When we overly synthesize those is when we get into trouble. Look at this quote. A theological system is supposed to satisfy two basic needs. The statement of the truth of the Christian message and the interpretation of this truth for every new generation. Theology moves back and forth between two poles. The eternal truth of its foundation and the temporal situation in which the eternal truth must be received. Okay. He's also known for saying a lot of contradictory things. The late R.C. Sproul, uh, I've heard him make fun of Tillich for saying this. Tillich would say things like this. God does not exist. He is being itself beyond essence and existence. Or Tillich would say things like, God is, uh, God is both beyond and not beyond being. You're like, well, that's just a contradiction. That doesn't mean anything. But it sounds cool. It sounds very philosophical. Okay. 
He also is a German. He would, uh, was born there, but he ended up teaching in the United States. His views led him to a lot of sexual licentiousness. So one of the things he was known to do when he was lecturing at a university in a new town is to ask, first thing right off the bat, where are the red light districts, where are the brothels, etc. right? Because again, if these things are just symbols and it's just the eternal truths that matter, you start ruining what the Bible says about Christianity. Next, we get not a German, but an Englishman. In addition to Darwin, we, we get another English guy. John Hick, 1922 through 2012, died recently. John Hick believed that there is evil in the world, listen to this reason, because God must distance himself from humans, not only so we can make our own choices. God doesn't want robots, right? God doesn't want to an- animatrons or whatever following him. We've got to make our own choices. So God has to give us hard stuff and distance himself. By the way, this is a little bit Arminian. <clears throat> so that we can suffer and go through what he calls soul-making, meaning difficult issues that teach us virtue. So if you ask Hick, why is there evil in the world? Well, God has to allow evil in the world so we can overcome it, so we can learn about ourselves, right? It's like a furnace. It's this crucible that helps us grow. But that's not the thing that Hick is most famous for. Here's what he's most famous for. Hick was one of the major promoters of religious pluralism. He believed that someone doesn't have to trust Jesus personally because they can just trust whatever God they know. In his works, The Myth of God Incarnate and God in the Universe of Faiths, he argued that all religions ultimately lead to the same goal. If you've ever heard that, Hick is a major proponent of that, right? Can a sincere Buddhist be saved? Can a sincere Muslim be saved? Can a sincere Jewish person be saved? Of course, just like a sincere Christian can be saved. Do you know why? Because though they have different definitions of God, the essence of what they're doing is the same. They all have dependence. They all believe in some higher power. Even Buddhists have some higher power, even though they don't technically have a God, right? They all seek to live morally. What Hick is doing is he's looking at the different religions, and he's saying, yes, they attach different names to this. And he would agree if you say, oh, yeah, Hick, well, why then are Hindus going for many gods and Christians going for just one god? He would say, that distinction is irrelevant in my system. My system is they're going for something divine and something divine. And so in his mind, you don't need Christ to be saved. You just have to trust whatever God is in you. If you've ever heard of the description of a bunch of blind men touching an elephant, and one is touching the trunk, and it describes it one way, and one is touching a tusk, and it describes it another way, and one is touching the elephant's leg, and it feels like a tree trunk or whatever it is, they're all coming up with different descriptions, but they're all describing the same being, this elephant. Some of them might think there are more elephants. Some might think that there are less. doesn't really matter. They're still about the same thing. And that's what Hick is going to promote with Christianity. You don't need conscious faith in Jesus to be saved. Rather, you can trust whatever God is in you. There's a picture there of uh, Hick who, again, died in uh, 2012. Now, you might think, okay, Zach, thanks for all these fun, weird stories. You said Darwin ate an owl, and you said that Marx's daughters made a suicide pact. And we've learned some fun things today. Nietzsche one time had a panic attack because he saw someone beating a horse. There's a bunch of weird things. Okay, a bunch of weird things with these guys. Why are we studying this? Right? Because in studying church history, only a few of these guys are even theologians. We, we might just think we, we just kind of got a, a history lesson or maybe an intellectual history lesson, maybe a little bit of philosophy. Why are we studying this? These guys influenced the two things that you need to understand, which is culture and the Bible and theology. Again, to be a good evangelist, you have to be great at both. Some Christians are really good at the Bible and really terrible about knowing what's going on in culture. They don't read the books, they don't watch the movies, they don't read who's who, they they don't know what's going on in culture, okay? 
But then you have other Christians who are really good at knowing what's going on in culture, so much so that they embrace the culture. They don't know their Bible well enough. They start with analyzing culture, and they haven't started with theology to say, what should we be doing? You have to be good at both, which is why I'm trying to give you thinkers and theologians. And I want to show you that some of the places where these guys' thoughts have influenced not only culture, but even places in some churches. Let me give you a few of these. The idea that animals have as much value as humans. This is going to go back to Darwin. Okay? As Christians, we are not racists. As Christians, we are not sexists. But we are speciesists. We think that humans were the best creation. Okay? We are. If you're driving down the road and there's a baby and a potted plant and a cat, you know which one you should avoid. You know which one you should try to hit. Okay? Because humans are special. Humans are special. But not to Darwin. We're just we're smart. But that doesn't mean we're special. We don't have the Imago Dei. The focus on social, social justice over preaching the gospel. That's ritual. The focus of theology being on your experience with God and how you deal with life. That's Boltmann. Treating the Bible just like a regular, non-inspired book. All of them. All of them would do that. Identifying yourself by your sexual orientation. Freud. The idea that creation can change or affect God. Hegel. Okay? Hegel. Your only hope is in the unchanging God. If you have a God that loves you today and doesn't love you tomorrow because you've changed him, you should be terrified. Your only hope is in God's impassibility. Redistribution of wealth or more equality between classes. Marx. The focus on equality of outcome instead of personal freedom. Marx. The idea that authority, power, or privilege are bad. The postmodernists. The idea that we can't know absolute truth from a God's eye view. Also the postmodernists. Remember, truth is a power play to oppress other people. Watering down Christianity to make it more palatable for people today. Boltmann and Tillich. The idea that people can be saved in other religions. John Hick. The idea that resisting your sexual urges can be unhealthy. Freud. Why do people have to be what they are? Why can you not give them counseling to let them see that homosexuality, for example, is a sin and that God can redeem them? Because that is overly suppressing. You have to suppress some of those desires so culture isn't crazy, but you have to have outlets for it. But with Freud, to do that too much leads to mental unhealth. The idea that Christian morality is actually immoral, that's Nietzsche. So anytime you see somebody online thinking that Christianity is being so mean because of our views of divorce, or so mean because of our views of abortion, or whatever it is, they're being like Nietzsche. Christian morality is actually what's immoral. It's this atheistic system, which is true morality. Downplaying the importance of doctrine and the importance of philosophy in doing theology, Harnack. Viewing people in terms of oppressor and oppressed, Marx. The idea that Christianity is primarily about loving others instead of primarily about Christ, Harnack. Again, we love others in Christianity, but is that the greatest command? No, in fact, it's what, what, what order is it? Second, first is loving God. Theology comes first, then helping others. The idea that you should live your best life now and maximize your potential. Nietzsche. See, Joel Osteen didn't know he had a little bit of Nietzsche in him. He didn't know when he's telling you to live your best life now. Make yourself great. He didn't realize that he had a little bit of Nietzsche in him. These are the enemies of the faith. There are many more. This list is somewhat arbitrary. I could pick a bunch of them in the modern era, and more and more come up every day. We're going to have another lesson in a few weeks on friends of the faith in the modern era. So a little bit of positive, positive to my negativity. Let's pray, and then we'll be done. Dear God, we thank you for your word that helps us discern not only who you are, but helps us discern our culture. I pray that it would be like glasses that we put on to see the world around us. I confess that these thinkers are great, great thinkers. 
And in some sense, we even see that they bear the image of God because they're smart. That you are so gracious that even your enemies you've made smart. But we ask that you would help us as we discern some of these thoughts that are, we're dealing with even today in 2021. Whether it's media, social media, politics, whatever. Some of these things have crept into the church. Would you help us? Would you protect us? We know that the devil appears as an angel of light. He's not going to show up and it's going to be obvious. We're going to see it after he's already in. Would you protect us? It's in Christ's name. Amen.